0: Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by Casuals for Casuals. My name is not Courtney, because I am Carl, and I am coming to you solo for this episode 55 because I'll be reviewing Star Wars Visions, and Courtney didn't watch this anime. What a plug. As always, there will be spoilers throughout this episode, especially about the Star Wars movie trilogies, so you've been warned. So this is it. This is my very first solo anime review on Strictly Anime. And I know that Courtney has done multiple solo reviews in the past because she watches, free, uh, she watches anime much more frequently than I do. And I've mentioned this the past couple of episodes that I've been currently in a busy season with my full-time job, so it's been difficult trying to find time to watch other anime and have discussions on them. But this was one that I definitely did not want to miss, so I'm kind of glad that it turned out to be my very first solo review, um, because this is kind of a blend of two, two, I guess, pop culture phenomenons that I am very much proud to be a part of, which is again the Star Wars franchise, and the Star, the star Wars fandom, and the anime fandom, and that, again, all comes together here in Disney Plus's streaming exclusive series, Star Wars Visions. Um, so I guess to start off, I can give a little bit of my background um, as a Star Wars fan, and I will be flat out honest. I did not grow up on Star Star Wars. I did not grow up on watching the films as a child. I feel like there was a lot of things that I missed out on. Um, growing up, like watching certain TV shows or movies, but these were things that I started to discover um, as I grew older. So I believe it was sometime in college when one of my friends randomly asked if our group of friends wanted to do a night of watching Star Wars movies, and you know, I thought I really wasn't into sci-fi at the time, and I feel like I'm still not really into the sci-fi genre, but I decided to just give this one a go and see how it was um, just so I could finally understand a lot of like the references that we see to Star Wars in, in pop culture and and just in in general um, so I think yeah there was one night where we just popped in um, the first Star Wars episode four A New Hope and I believe we did the despecialized editions So for those of you not in the know, um, George Lucas made some modifications to the original trilogy of Star Wars movies, um, added these special effects and extra scenes that a lot of people weren't pleased with. So there was a fan project where um, these Star Wars fans and I guess people who are really experienced with film editing decided to try to bring the movies back to their original form. And so... On that first uh, Star Wars movies night, we watched that despecialized edition, and I went in with an open mind, but I just remember feeling, like, really fascinated by the story, and yeah, it, it did heavily expand upon, like, the science fiction aspect of it, with it being in space and such, but I think a lot of people like to classify Star Wars as a space opera. Where it's not so much focused on like all the science fictiony aspects of it, but it's really a story about, again, war of course, hence the title Star Wars, but just also about family and the concept of hope, and you know the the, the code of honor that we we see in the, um, like with the, the Jedi, and I think yeah, that's where my intrigue just grew from there. And it's become this whole thing where um, I've collected a lot of Star Wars memorabilia now. Um, Courtney can attest to the multitudes of, of action figures from the Black Series that I have on display. Um, I have a couple of the replica lightsabers. And not like the ones that you can pick up at a toy store and you just flick them and, and the saber comes out in like these staggered, um, these staggered sticks but like the ones that you get from like like the Disney theme parks. Um, I have cosplayed as Kylo Ren. Um, maybe sometime in the future, I'll share pictures of that. Um, but yeah, I, even this late into my life, Star Wars has become an integral part of my love for, for pop culture. Um, and so when Disney Plus announced that they were doing this series that blends, again, two of my favorite um, pop culture pastimes, which are Star Wars and anime, I knew that I had to jump in on watching this even in the midst of busy season. And of course, I think Star Wars is the perfect topic to be used um, in an anime setting because the creation of Star Wars, as much as it was an American film made by George Lucas, he was very grounded, it was very grounded and inspired by Japanese culture and tradition, because I believe when George Lucas came up for the concept of the new, or the first film, um, he, uh, one of his influences was um, Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, Um, Akira Kurosawa being a Japanese filmmaker known for like these samurai spaghetti westerns. Um, So again, with them using the medium of anime to to fuel this series I felt like that was the perfect medium for this anthology and so Star Wars Visions it's not one whole story that's contained in this nine episodes again with it being an anthology it's just this collection of I guess you could call them short stories or like vignettes of of just characters throughout this, this vast universe of Star Wars um, that aren't directly connected to anything in the movies. Uh, it does use some of the lore, and I'll kind of go into that a little bit later. But I think for the show to kind of use that approach makes it a very exciting and unique way to look at Star Wars, I guess, in a, in a new light. And I'm kind of surprised that we haven't s- seen anime used as this sort of platform to tell um, Star Wars stories throughout its throughout its time in media history. Um, I know there was, I think, one major use of anime with a Star Wars backdrop. There's a, I think it was a fan-made YouTube video called TIE Fighter, which is basically... Um, it was like it looked like an AMV, but it just showcased this dogfight, this aerial dogfight between Imperial Tie Fighters and and Rebel X-Wings, and it was just so gorgeously animated, and it didn't look like your typical American animation. It, it had all of the the visual aesthetic and design of, of of Japanese animation, and that's the one thing that I remember from the past where we saw, again, anime and Star Wars combined into one. But of course, it's never too late. And so now we have this series, which I feel is like a very exciting blend of Japanese animation and the typical Star Wars tropes, um, some of which are like the screen swipes from the movies where it transitions between scenes. Um, One of my friends pointed out that there are... I think in every episode of Star Wars Visions, you hear a character saying some variation of, I have a bad feeling about this, um, which is a line that also appears in a lot of Star Wars movies. Um, just, again, the, the plot lines of, of it being a space opera or sci-fi adventure, um, even such canon as like seeing twin suns on planets or variations of familiar starships or droids, and, of course, the lightsaber duels, which are aplenty in this series. And even, like, the concept of, like, losing hands or limbs um, is, is peppered in certain episodes, which, again, these are all just great homages to the stuff that makes Star Wars Star Wars. And seeing it again with the lens of Japanese animation just amps up the, the fidelity like audibly, visually, up to 11. And even a credit to the music, which there were several different composers um, that composed different episodes in the series. Kevin Pankin, which I know he has done a couple of anime, um, says here in his wiki that he composed the music for Shield Hero um, and Tower of God. Um, Eden made an abyss uh, so he did I think one episode of the village bride for Star Wars visions and then you have uh, Japanese composers Michiro Oshima, uh, Yoshiaka Dewa, K. G. Inai, A.B. and Keichiro Shibuya, Uzan, Nobukotora, Kazuma Jinouchi, I probably butchered a lot of those names but again various composers that worked on this series. And I think they also stay very true to the music that was popularized by John Williams in the movies while also retaining a a sort of Japanese sound to it. Because you'll hear a lot of the cultural instruments of Japan in certain episodes, um, almost evoking those feelings, again, of those samurai spaghetti westerns or, again, like traditional... Japanese or Far East music. And of course, we can't talk about anime without mentioning the animation studios behind the visuals of these episodes. Um, I know there are a handful that aren't too well known, um, but to go through the list, we have Kamikaze Doga, Studio Colorido, Geno Studio, uh, Studio Trigger, which a lot of you might know um, that they've done Promare, BNA Brand New Animal, Darling in the Franks. Uh, Kill a Kill, Kinema Citrus, which I believe is behind the production for S.H.I.E.L.D. Hero, production IG, which is currently working on Fena Pirate Princess, which we are currently watching, Ghost in the Shell, Standalone Complex, and this was interesting to find that they also worked on Batman Gotham Knight, which was another anime anthology series that I think was released Around the time that the Dark Knight trilogy by Chris Nolan um, was was still at its popularity, and finally, uh, Science Saru, which has produced Keep Your Hands Off Azoken, Devil Man Crybaby. I think they did a couple episodes of Space Dandy, and apparently they did one episode of Adventure Time, which got rave reviews, but. Yeah, so a total of seven animation studios that worked on Star Wars Visions, each with their own vision, no pun intended, for these stories. And again, it's just great that they are able to keep this balance of rooting it in, in Star Wars lore while giving us the, I guess, the visual anime orgasms that we, we always get from and watching these these types of shows we also have to call out the stacked cast of voice actors not only on the english side but also on the japanese side because of course as it was one of our rules for strictly anime i watched star wars visions with the japanese dub um just to kind of stay faithful to it being an anime um and surprisingly the lip flaps also matched Um, in the Japanese version, although I know that varies, again, with the dialogue between English and Japanese. So for the English voice cast, you have such renowned actors as Lucy Liu, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bobby Moynihan, Tamuera Morrison, who, fun fact, is the actor for Jango Fett or the current Boba Fett um, in the Disney Plus um, Mandalorian series. Uh, you also have Neil Patrick Harris, Karen Fukuhara, Simu Lu, who a lot of us might know now from Shang-Chi, David Harbour from Stranger Things, Jamie Chung, and George Takai, who I know he is of Star Trek fame, but I know he's voiced Star Wars characters for the animated TV show um, Clone Wars. So I think all they needed was just Mark Hamill. <laughs> it would have been nice to have him cameo maybe he did an uncredited cameo um even as a minor character at in one of these episodes but i think that would have been the cherry on top for him to have been involved um, in this series because i know he's also voiced characters in clone wars and even did uncredited uh, voice cameos throughout some of the the later movies so that rounds out the english cast and then you have the japanese Seiyu, um and yeah this again it's a pretty stacked list you have Junya enoki um the voice of yuji itadori asami seto who uh, voiced uh, nobaro kukisaki and both of those characters coming from jujutsu Kaisen. magumi han and maria isei who were Gon and kilua respectively in hunter x hunter or Hunter Hunter, I have to remember not to say the X anymore now that we're watching Hunter Hunter. Um, and then Maria it was also the voice of Ray from The Promised Neverland, um, Daisuke Hirakawa, who was the voice of Kakyoin in Jojo Part 3, Akio Otsuka, um, who has that sort of older grumbly voice that you recognize in All for One from My Hero and Wamu from Jojo Part 2, uh, Yuichi Nakamura, which he has a very distinct voice, Um, I think he was in the episode of Star Wars Visions, where it was the master and the Padawan visiting um, an outer rim planet. Um, He's known as the voice for Gojo, again from Jujutsu Kaisen, and Bucherati from Jojo Part 5. Um, And then you have Wataro Takagi, who I think he was in the last episode of Visions, um, who played Onizuka and great teacher Onizuka, and Okuyasu from JoJo Part Four. So again, you have all of these notable Japanese and English actors and and voice actors that are um, playing prominent roles um, in these episodes. So I think that also just heightens the the excitement of it, and really again roots this not only in 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 like Star Wars pop culture, but also roots it in in anime pop culture as well. And lastly, before I get into brief discussions about each episode, I just wanted to call out the significance of this anthology being non-canon, which is something that I really came to appreciate after watching some of these episodes, because for those of you who don't know, canon has been a pretty controversial uh, topic in the Star Wars fandom recently, especially after disney acquired uh, lucasfilm in the previous decade Um, you also hear a lot about the canon being ruined with with the sequel the sequel films Um, so like the force awakens the last jedi and the rise of skywalker and you have i guess og fans complaining about the non-canonization of the expanded universe which is now coined as Star Wars Legends and the expanded universe were like the series of tie-in novels, comics, I think there were even some shows that came out um before Disney acquired Lucasfilm. Um so all of these different forms of media that came out between the 70s um and late 2000s that once Disney bought the rights to Star Wars, they kind of pushed that all aside um while not calling them less significant, but more so saying that none of those stories matter anymore and whatever comes out as a product from our end will become canon now in the Star Wars universe. And again, I know that's divided a lot of fans and I have friends who have been fans since the prequels or fans like since the original trilogy and they they question some of the moves that Disney has made in terms of the story. So I think with Star Wars visions being non-canon it kind of takes that weight off of the the studio's shoulders and of the like the burden off of the viewers going into this so that with the animation studios on their end the animating staff and the writing staff don't have to feel tied down by making sure that their stories kind of fit within the lore of this vast universe again i think that's just more of a benefit than a disadvantage and i know with like other anthology series again the only ones that really come to mind um within the realm of anime are batman gotham knight and um, the animatrix i know those were short stories that kind of enhanced the lore of their respective um franchises but just because again star wars is so vast and you have a fandom that that's can kind of feel like a ticking time bomb i think the the choice of making this non-canon really brings out true creative freedom for these studios without really having to worry about stuff like you know the accuracy of the droid depictions because again with certain animation styles in these episodes they're not like droids or even starships are not depicted as accurately as you would see them in the movies um you know especially with the what was it the T O B one episode you have droids that are drawn very kawaii like like very cutesy like and you're not going to see that in 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 a, a regular star wars film but i think it's just understood that we're watching this through the visual of anime and it's just their interper- interpretation of of these these items or these objects in the uni- in the star wars universe And even the outfits of the respective warring sides from the Empire to... I guess it's not the Rebel Alliance, but you have like different Rebel factions. And you can tell that a lot of it is just influenced by almost like feudal era Japan um, clothing and fashion. Um, So you can kind of tell that, again, it's not really in the canon star wars universe but again that's okay and you can also have the assumption that since this galaxy is so vast you can have all sorts of planets or beings or creatures that again don't fit within what we think is the aesthetic of star wars um but you can also just interpret it as being influenced by japanese culture and tradition and i kind of like that Again, the the episodes infuse um japanese influences again, with Star Wars having that inspiration with Japanese um, uh, pop culture or tradition. Um, a lot of the episodes, you have villages that are, are clearly inspired by Japanese settings. There are locales. Again, we have the clothing and some, even the weaponry. Um, even the first episode where the, the, the Jedi Ronin has like this fucking lightsaber that he unsheathes, kind of like a, traditional katana like i i know that's not supposed to work in in regular star wars lore but to see that um concept being adapted again through like this japanese historical lens was just so mind-blowing to me and and i just loved it so all of these things really made visions an enjoyable watch um and there were some, some things about it that didn't particularly sit well with me but I think overall I had a great experience with it and again with it being non-canon I didn't really have to worry so much about what was happening episode to episode because there isn't really any sort of chronological um, plot that connects all of these episodes together and so again with me being in busy season it was it was kind of an easy watch because I could just watch an episode every night Um, without having to remember, oh, what happened in this previous episode? Because again, these all take place separately, individually from each other. um, So you can kind of just focus on each as its own experience. And it's weird because a lot of these episodes average about 15 minutes, so less than your typical anime episode, but they pack so much into it that it feels like you're watching a a 22-minute anime episode, or even at some points it felt like it was almost like an hour long, um, because they just, they some episodes are just able to compact, or what's the word? Yeah, I guess make the storyline so compact, but still so effective that you're kind of just lost in the moment and really invested in the characters and the story, and then before you know it, the episode is over. Um, so I think that, Star Wars Visions does that so well in capturing the audience's attention whilst balancing it, again, with the typical things that viewers would love about anime or about watching um, different iterations of Star Wars stories. And so we move on to the synopsis or discussion aspect of our podcast episodes. And, you know, I'll still do my regular synopsis for each episode, but since... um, they're not really connected or in any sort of chronological order. I'm um, not going to have like this very heavy plot summary. Um, and I'll just kind of pull out some of the more significant highlights of each episode that I that I really took to heart. And I'll kind of bridge those highlights with my own insight into Star Wars lore and, and knowledge, as well as bridge it with what i know from my experiences with anime so hopefully it's a discussion that that we'll all get a lot out of and in true star wars fashion it'll be coming from my own perspective and from my own certain point of view so to start star wars visions is a 2021 anime anthology series created for the american streaming service disney plus produced by lucasfilm animation The series consists of 9 short films produced by 7 Japanese animation studios, each telling their own original stories based on the Star Wars universe. Starting with Episode 1, The Duel, produced by Kamikaze Doga, a ronin-wan Kenobi travels through a village under siege by a self-declared Sith Lord and her band of stormtroopers. He and his droid work together to take down Sister Saber Slayer and her strange umbrella lightsaber weapon. We later learn that Ronin-Wan Kenobi is a former Sith hunting down his former friends as he leaves her kyber crystal to the villagers for their own protection. So what a way to open up the anthology series. I thought high level that this first episode was a love letter to Akira Kurosawa, again, the Japanese film director who George Lucas took um, inspiration from, specifically from his movie The Hidden Fortress. And, you know, it's kind of funny because this episode uses this sort of black and white grainy film filter, much like the Akira Kurosawa films of the past. And I know that um, the Sony PlayStation game Ghosts of Tsushima even adds this filter, since that video game also feels like a, a love letter to Kurosawa. And... Even the plot of this um, I found very similar to Kurosawa's film Yojimbo or or The Bodyguard where it's this again this ronin who travels into a village and kind of gets caught up in in their politics and in their feud and you can even see this in the character design of the ronin jedi himself he has like his hair up in that that tied up um not like a ponytail, but, you know, sticking up, sticking out upwards, and he has all the layered cloth- clothing, the robes, and again, just, just his sheath holding that lightsaber was, was probably one of the, one of my favorite parts of this episode that really, again, that showcases the, the Japanese aspect of, of this series, and even his, his joy that accompanied him had that, like, had that straw hat, um, at- atop his dome, um, as he was traveling with him. And I think one of the more interesting parts that I found from this episode was with him revealing his lightsaber. Uh, because you would, I like, for me as a Star Wars fan, I would think that he is a like an, an ex, a Jedi in exile, um, just knowing the state of the galaxy um, while it was under the, the clutches of the Empire. Um, you have Jedi scattered throughout throughout the galaxy that were trying to stay in hiding um so as not to draw any attention but i think the amazing part was that once he unsheathed his lightsaber it didn't glow blue like you blue or green like you'd expect from uh typical jedi but it glows red and you know reading kind of the synopsis after i watched this episode it implied again that he was a a former sith and it's kind of interesting because it it kind of shows that this this ronin character has had a past that he has had to come to terms with you know in, in embracing the dark side and hopefully now like he's he's realized the error of his ways and the that the ideologies of of the dark side or of the sith are corrupt and so that's why he has abandoned that cause and has gone into wandering and stopped one of his former allies that is terrorizing this village so it's an interesting concept because again you typically see more of the jedi in exile rather than the the evil character turned good um although i would say his his moral integrity might still be in question because again we're not this is all we get of this character um although I believe there is a tie in novel that is coming out that um, relates to the character, the Ronin character of this episode, and, and it's called Ronin. So I will probably pick that up sometime soon just because I find this opening story to Star Wars Visions so fascinating. And again, so deeply rooted in its appreciation and in its homage to um, Japanese film culture and Japanese tradition. Last thing I'll say about this episode is that there is actually an Easter egg um, that is almost like a blink and you'll miss. Um, There's one point where it shows a projection screen, I think, in the village town square, and if you look really closely on the projection screen is the original vintage poster for the first uh, Star Wars film, which is, it's like an it's drawn in like those typical movie vintage movie posters. Um, I believe it's, it's Luke Skywalker holding a lightsaber, lightsaber up in the foreground. And then um, you have like this image of Darth Vader that's kind of looming over him along with the Death Star and then just the ca- uh, cast of characters surrounding um, Luke. So again, with, with the homage to Japanese Film culture. You also have, again, that homage to Star Wars film culture in this episode as well. In episode two, Tatooine Rhapsody, produced by Studio Colorado, after being saved from Order 66 by a hut named G, former Padawan turned rock star Jay joins his band Star Waver and escapes the clutches of bounty hunter Boba Fett, sent by Jabba the Hut to capture his hut cousin for insubordination. When Jay and the band head to Tatooine to save their besieged band leader from execution, Jay asks Jabba to give them one more chance by putting on an interstellar show for the crowd. Jabba spares their lives and becomes their financial sponsor, thereby allowing the band to continue to rock out with their sabacc out. The, the one note that I had for this is that it's chibi Star Wars. And it's kind of funny seeing Boba Fett... And even Jabba the Hutt in this very anime chibi-like form, because they they all look like they can't be any taller than like three feet. Um, but it's just it's very anime <laughs> of this episode to use that 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 visual style. And you know I don't think we we often hear rock music in Star Wars as well. I know that there are cantina bands in universe that. Have been featured in in the films but it's it's more of a like funky kind of a funky kind of music genre um never really hear rock music as i said and maybe someone can correct me out there if i'm wrong although i take that back uh the the game jedi fallen order um which is canon within the star wars universe that actually opens up um with a rock song and i think it's by it was by a Mongolian like death metal band, um, but they changed the lyrics to be spoken in, I believe it was Huttese, the language of the Huts. I could be wrong there, and someone can correct me there too. But the thing I took out of out of this episode is, you know, you have the power of the Force in the Star Wars galaxy, but sometimes all you need is is the power of music to help you prevail. <laughs> And I think you see that with the story of Jay. Again, I think this episode starts off um, in the midst of Order 66, which, to those unfamiliar, is when um, Emperor Palpatine, the big baddie of the Star Wars universe, orders um, his troops, which are clone troopers, to get rid of and execute, basically, um, all the Jedi um, strewn throughout the universe. And so Jay himself is a Padawan, um, which is a a Jedi in training or an apprentice, and so he is also affected by this this order. Um, but then, again, since he can no longer use his his Jedi powers or like the powers of the Force, he goes to his second hobby, which I feel like is music. And I think there's a, a subtle message there, where uh, again he he's able to use his his force powers later on, um, to try and save G, but, you know, I think the message here is you can also help others out, and (laughs) maybe, like, save the galaxy, um, with, with your other talents, too, and I think that's what ultimately saved G in the end, again, the power of music, um, I've only heard, of course, the Japanese version of this song, uh, I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt, voiced Jay in the English dub so I have yet to to hear the English version of this song but you know hearing from my friend who was curious enough to to watch the English dub I think it was kind of off-putting for him so I might not listen to it immediately maybe I'll save it for some time down the road but it's a banger I'll probably add it to my Spotify anime playlist because again this is technically an anime in episode 3, The Twins, produced by Studio Trigger, post-Return of the Jedi, the remnants of the Empire construct conjoined twin star destroyers with the power of the Death Star, and throw in the creation of two humanoid twins as well to train in the dark side of the Force and pilot the ship to destroy the New Republic. One of the twins, Kar, goes rogue and steals the weapon's kyber crystal after getting a vision of his sister Am's death. However, they fight each other to the death until the crystal is destroyed via a risky hyperspace maneuver. Carr crash lands on Tatooine, of all planets in the galaxy, and vows to save his sister from the dark side. I know I mentioned with episode one that we don't really see a lot of stories in Star Wars where it's the a character that starts off on, I guess, the, the, the bad side, the evil side, and then comes to the error of their ways, or comes to realize the error of their ways, and moves to the, the light side. But I guess it's a concept that you see more in recent Star Wars stories, so this kind of fits in with visions. Um, the Force Awakens kind of introduced this with Finn, um, who started off as a stormtrooper for the First Order, and then after seeing exactly what the First Order was up to, it was like, fuck that noise, and joined the Resistance. I'm pretty sure there's a similar plot line in Star Wars Battlefront to the new video game, not the one from from like the PS2, Xbox One era, um, where it's like a character who, again, goes from the dark side to the light side. So I think you just see that continued here, again, with episode one with the duel, and here, episode three with the twins, and interesting that they use the concept of the twins because I think that's in homage to uh, Luke and Leia um, being born as twin brother and twin sister, as revealed in, I guess, the original trilogy and also more so explained in the prequels. Uh, I also see that this plotline was a little reminiscent of the cinematic trailer for um, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, um, a video, a PC game, I think, that came out. Um, early 2000s, I want to say. I never played it because, again, I've only been introduced to Star Wars more in more recent decades. But that trailer is titled Sacrifice and has um, two brothers that also kind of train side by side and then end up having to face off against one another. Um, but as visually intriguing and as unique as the story was, I didn't really find it too particularly engaging. And I can't really pinpoint the reason why um maybe it's because i think this was also this felt like star wars anime on on almost steroids with the whole duel almost taking place outside of outside in the open space um amidst like these i'm pretty sure they're like asteroids or just you know the the two twins battling atop starships and that was kind of far out for me. And I know that's happened um, previously in, in certain other um, Star Wars shows, but no, it was kind of weird. And also just the concept of them being born out of a kyber crystal. Um, again, I, I could see it fitting in Star Wars lore, but that also feels very, like, anime to me. <laughs> um, other homages that you can see, they, I guess this episode also had strong vibes of the last jedi so pulling from the sequel trilogy with that pivotal scene where the twins are both reaching for the kyber crystal and you have opposite forces of the force pun in, no pun intended um putting so much pressure on the crystal that it ends up breaking into or yeah and then you have the the hyperdrive maneuver that car does in the climax which is similar to the holdo maneuver um that was used in The Last Jedi. And I know that also comes with its own source of controversy. So I think like this episode um, also challenges those those bits of criticisms of, of the sequel trilogy and of The Last Jedi and kind of puts them all here in this episode. So maybe it's just coincidence. Um, but also, I think the story takes place after the events of the original trilogy as well, which puts it into the, the timeline of the sequel trilogy. And I know none of this, again, is canon, but just very interesting that they they chose to do these things for Episode 3 in particular. So I would say this episode is ranked a little bit lower on my list of of my favorite episodes in Visions. Um, But again, still an enjoyable watch. In Episode 4, The Village Bride, produced by Kinema Citrus, Exiled Jedi F is summoned to a remote planet by Valco Punch informing her of reprogrammed separatist droids holding a village hostage until the village chief's daughter, Haru and fiance Asu, surrender to their bandit group after their wedding ceremony. The next day, Haru’s sister Aku is captured by the bandits and nearly executed for interfering until F and Valko step in to do some Star Warsy shit to save the village. This episode screamed “To your eternity to me. Like, I just got those vibes from the animation aesthetic and just the story itself. Without delving too much into spoilers for Two Year Eternity, it almost reminded me of the the March arc from that anime. Um, But all that aside, I think story-wise, this is kind of a reflection on what the Jedi's purpose are supposed to be. And... We see that with the character F. Um, She starts off by wearing this mask at the beginning of the story. And I think that's just symbolizing her trying to hide her true identity as this Jedi in exile after, you know, the great Jedi purge and Order 66 and all that jazz. Um, It's her, like, just kind of watching things along with this, this situation in the village and not interfering. Um, but I think she comes to the realization that she has the, the powers and the ability to, to make a positive change for this village in peril. And so by her removing her mask at the climax, it's her unmasking her true identity again as, this, as a Jedi, as this guardian of peace. And that instills a spark of hope in the village that they can overcome these these bandits that are terrorizing them and really trusting in the ways of the force to guide them on the right path. So that thing of inspiring hope amongst the village just emphasizes the key theme of hope um, in Star Wars. And yeah, you can see that in the title of episode four, A New Hope, but that's hope is a thing that just drives a lot of the plot lines um, of the movies. Again, of trying to rise out from a dark place and knowing that there's something brighter on the horizon and that's what they see or that's what the village sees by the end of this episode what i found particularly interesting with the uh, the village bride episode is that the 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 married couple um and the village too they refer to the force by um their local term which is Magina. And I've actually seen this before through another form of Star Wars media. Um, There's a book called The Legends of Luke Skywalker, which takes place within, again, the Disney Star Wars canon. Um, One of the chapters of that book shows Luke Skywalker in his journey to learn more about how to become a proper Jedi. I think he visits this, this faraway planet, um that's i believe just completely surrounded by or like yeah it's just completely surrounded by water with just pockets of land and so the inhabitants of that planet refer to the force as the tide and i just think that concept is so fascinating of the force um still existing in its true form in nature but it's known by these different names and monikers across different cultures you can kind of compare it to how certain religions in the real world have similar stories or similar ideologies just showing that um at least in the star wars universe everyone is just connected by this one thing and again it's this thing that really gives people life and again gives people hope um so for again the villagers to refer to the force as the Magina, whilst F when she departs the the planet at the end of the story bids them farewell by saying you know may the force be with you um, it's it's kind of acknowledging that there are differences between different beings or different persons but again, you know, in some way we are all still connected by this life force no pun intended um, just a couple other smaller details that I loved about this episode, Valko's character exudes almost like a Han Solo vibe to him, um, especially when he assists F in defending the villagers uh, in the ver- at the very end. And maybe, again, this is just a, a homage to the Star Wars, the renowned Star Wars smuggler um, Han Solo, um, including his kind of rough-around-the-edges character that ends up assisting the hero um, in the end and of course the F freezing the blaster shot at that turning point when um, the bandits are about to execute um, the sister I think when the, the the screen cuts to black and then you hear, you hear the blaster shot and then you just see the um, shot freeze in space I know that was done in The Force Awakens with Kylo Ren but seeing it here that, like that's the moment where you see um, F. Come to the rescue. And I thought that was just a great way to introduce her, to get her out of the shadows, um, to, to face down against against these antagonists once and for all. In episode 5, The Ninth Jedi, produced by Production IG, the mysterious Margrave Juro invites seven Force users to his aerial temple to gift them with lightsabers and reestablish the Jedi Order. The Margrave's sabersmith tasks his daughter, Kara, to deliver the lightsabers to the Margrave, but she is pursued by bounty hunters who gun down her father in the scuffle. Once she arrives to the temple, six of the Force users reveal themselves as Sith Acolytes sent to take down the Margrave. Kara pulls a ray and teams up with the Margrave and the one Light Side Force user, Ethan, to take down the Among Us imposters, save for one, Homan, who snaps out of his Sith brainwashing. The group then comes together with the goal of reestablishing the Jedi Order across the galaxy, far, far away. This was a really fucking good short story in Visions, and I remember Aaron, um, from Under the Bun, uh, kind of hyping up this episode, and so I understood the hype um, after watching it, um, especially with that twist with the Margrave and the summoned uh, Force users, because. I, obviously, from the beginning, we, we're kind of shrouded in mystery as to who the Margrave really is, and the episode frames it as if he's actually up to nefarious means, but then we find out all of that is a red herring simply by Kara arriving at the temple and um, calling out for the Margrave. Um, and to incorporate the sabersmiths intentionally designing the lightsabers to reflect like for the color of the lightsaber to reflect um i guess the the spirit or the personality of the force user wielding it um was just a great plot point here for that big reveal about the the, the seven force users that were summoned to the temple um and even you can even see that as character development for Kara, um who I, I kind of got force awakens vibes from her cause she just reminded me of Ray so much. Um, I know there's an argument of Ray being a, a Mary Sue, but you know, as, as Kara comes to realize the, the, the danger she is in, um, and she, she happens to have this, this useful skill set with a lightsaber, which can kind of be explained cause her father's the, the sabersmith. Um, Her lightsaber starts off as this sort of transparent color, but then turns blue once like the force has kind of deemed her almost like worthy uh, of of fighting for the light side. And then obviously you have the Sith acolytes when they ignite their sabers, you see them all glowing um, red, indicating that they were the big baddies all along. And again, that's a just a great twist. And I, maybe you could chalk that up to being like a um, homage to the anime trope of like twists and turns in all of these anime stories. Um, but I just loved it. The, this episode was, again, it, it still felt Star Wars-y um, with that element of, of anime added in. And it's definitely one of the more impactful short stories of the series. Um, And just one more thing with the the whole lightsaber color thing. With Homan 2, I believe his lightsaber glows purple. And that's kind of significant because um, in the prequel trilogy, Mace Windu, who was played by Samuel Jackson, his lightsaber was also purple. And um, the, the trivia behind it is it's just because Samuel Jackson wanted a purple lightsaber. But I think they established lore that wielders of a purple lightsaber kind of are in this sort of gray area where they, they, they still operate on the light side of the force, but they kind of use darker techniques um, when necessary. So for Homan to be the one who kind of snaps out of his, his his Sith influence, um, I think that was a fitting color for him. Um, Again, kind of staying within the lore of Star Wars, but still establishing um, its own canon outside of the regular Star Wars canon. But yeah, I would rank this pretty high in one of, as one of my favorite episodes out of Star Wars Visions, and it definitely left me wanting to see more of Kara, of Ethan, um, and the Margrave's journey to, to re-establish the Jedi Order. And maybe you could consider that an anime trio? Um, unless you had Homan in, of course. But yeah, they haven't really made any announcements for whether or not they'll continue with this anthology series for a potential season two. But if they do, I would love to see a continuation of um, the story of the ninth Jedi and see how they go through the galaxy trying to establish the, reestablish the Jedi Order from, from their certain point of view. In episode six, TOB1, produced by Science Saru... Professor Mitaka creates a droid named T-O-B-1, or Tobi, who has lofty dreams of becoming a Jedi Knight while assisting the Professor with enriching their deserted planet with natural resources. While searching for a kyber crystal to forge his lightsaber, astro Toby accidentally sends out a beacon that summons a Sith Inquisitor to their location and strikes down Mitaka, who is revealed to be a Jedi in exile. The event spurs Astro-Tobi to double down on his efforts to become a Jedi, and discovers that the kyber crystal was literally in himself all along. Astro Toby gets Jedi sanctioned vengeance for his master by striking down the Inquisitor upon his return, and vows to continue Mitaka's legacy as he travels through the galaxy far, far away. This episode was like Astro Boy meets Pinocchio with Toby's design. You know it it's obviously a very cutesy sort of bubblegum visuals. Even the sounds of Mitako walking um, have like almost like a curvy sort of feel to them. But you know, despite like this almost happy-go-lucky visual aesthetic, I think it was still a pretty emotional story. Um, I think it's something that Star Wars fans who who grew up with the series can ha- kind of identify with. Um, you know, the dreams of of becoming a a Jedi Knight as we see Toby kind of playing pretend Jedi with the the little cutesy droids around him. Um, So it kind of evokes that sort of that awe and wonder aspect of Star Wars that really encapsulates, uh, encapsulates people. And yeah, I guess you could consider Meek Taka getting struck down as like the the Obi-Wan moment in A New Hope for Luke. That's the Obi-Wan moment for uh, Toby here. And, you know, like the transitions between certain sequences, um, it, it's never established how much time it is, but we do see a time pass um, where eventually like Toby, despite being a droid, I think he had the capability of using the Force all along. Because again, he has a kyber crystal um, in his, his DNA um and yeah it's just funny because like it's the power was in him all along and you have him taking down the Inquisitor which was a nice touch again to add from the regular Star Wars lore um this Inquisitor and then of course Toby losing his hand just like Luke Skywalker did and the Empire Strikes Back um all in all it was a really good story nothing I guess too astounding about it but I I kind of want to just talk about the the name moniker for Toby which again is TOB1. I feel like this is a better droid name for for this character than L337, L337 um from Solo a Star Wars story which was literally an homage to Elite and I thought that was just so blatant. Um but I think Toby was a nice nice um identifier for again this droid it's very has like that innocent feel to it um but kind of fits in with that theme of of recognizable droid names um i believe there's a droid i for those of you who don't know i'm a lego hobbyist and so um there i have a lot of different star wars lego sets and there was a a minifigure of a droid and it was called nil L eight so annihilate. is <laughs> kind of stupid, but I get it. It's funny that they, or kind of nice that they use that kind of naming system here for Toby. In episode seven, The Elder, produced by Studio Trigger in its second episode for the series, a Jedi master and his Padawan sense a disturbance in the force as they travel to a planet on the Outer Rim, where they learn of a mysterious Elder intruder upsetting the local wildlife. Padawan Dan confronts the Elder, who reveals himself to be, well, what do you know, a former Sith Lord that still has enough fight in him to wound the Padawan. Jedi Master Tajin arrives to finish the job as Senior Sith crumbles to dust and remotely destroys his ship. Tajin uses the event to teach a tried-and-true Jedi lesson to his Padawan. Don't be an asshole like that guy. This episode, kind of like episode 1, felt... Like it was inspired by samurai cinema while also feeling like an homage to episode one, The Phantom Menace, specifically that master Padawan relationship. Um, in that movie, we saw it with between uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Here we see it with Tajin and Dan. Although with this episode, the turns are tabled <laughs> as its master this time who ends up having to defend the Padawan which it's kind of odd that the Padawan ends up um, being fine at the end of this episode. Um, I felt it could have been a little bit more impactful um, for the Jedi Master to, to come to terms with his his apprentice's death. Um, so it was kind of surprising that, again, Dan ended up living in the end, but it was him who still had the strength to assist uh, Tajin in defeating the, the Elder. Um, and that that lightsaber that fatal blow of the lightsaber um that tajin inflicted on the elder kind of like kylo ren in the last jedi when he teamed up with Rey and blasted the uh the lightsaber into that guard's face um that was such a like a a jaw dropping moment for me when i watched it in this episode um, cause you like and you have the elder that it's using like the the sith um lightning power against Tajin. But yeah, for him to like parry that off, for Tajin to parry that off and then just do that fatal blow was just amazing. And <laughs> very nice control of his lightsaber if if you can imagine that as well. And yeah, I guess the takeaway again at the end, with Tajin being able to muster up the strength to defend uh or not did I say with Tajin? With Dan mustering up enough strength to defend Tajin um, against the Elder by losing his, or trying to grab his attention. Um, it's almost like character development in Dan himself. And Tajin kind of recognizes that by using this this event as a lesson to teach uh, the Padawan. And it's kind of reminiscent of what Yoda tells Luke in The Last Jedi, which is, we are what they grow beyond. And that's the lesson that Tajin is imparting to Dan um, in this moment, um, seeing that uh, the Elder, while he was past his prime, could have still struck down Tajin um, had it not been for Dan's interference. And alongside that kind of character development, um, you have the idea or the notion that life is impermanent so you kind of want to embrace the legacy of those who came before you. Again, those that you grow beyond. In this case, uh, Master uh, Tajin for Dan, while forging a new path forward. And not only that, um, Tajin points out that it was Dan's kindness that saved him um, in his fight against the elder. So using kindness as a virtue alongside your your own growth. Um In this case, it's a key weapon against the dark side, which the elderly man was consumed by. So as much as his path is something that is tempting and could happen to any of us, I think it's kindness in the end that um, Master Tajin wants to instill in Dan, who's already, again, with him being a Padawan, you'd expect him to be of of kind nature. Um, But that paired in with moving forward, and establishing a positive legacy. In episode eight, Lop and Ocho, produced by Geno Studio, an escaped furry convict named Lop is welcomed into the family of a clan leader and his daughter Ocho, who grows up to be an empire worshipping bitch willing to exploit her planet's resources for the Imperial cause. The clan leader passes on the family lightsaber heirloom to Lop, who confronts her in a prototypical lightsaber duel before Ocho flees with the Imperial fleet? And in true Star Wars fashion, Lop vows to bring Ocho back from the dark side and hopefully convince her to not have a number for a name. I never thought I'd live to see the day when Star Wars meets furries. <laughs> and you could probably consider Wookiees or, or Chewbacca furry, but here it, it's a furry head-on with the character Lop. Um, I don't have much to really say about this episode um, besides the idea of family. And I know time and again people have often used the phrase blood is thicker than water, um, but I think that's often misconstrued because the, the actual phrase from what I've heard is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, signifying that sometimes it's the ties that bind us that are are stronger than just like family connection and you see that here again with ocho um being consumed by by wanting power you know she has good intentions for her planet because the the narrator establishes that the, the planet hasn't really technologically advanced um, and the empire is or comes in to kind of fill that void but it's at the cost of the planet and it's for their own own gain so she's kind of blinded by that um, by by siding with the empire and embracing her dark side and so it's lop who you know she is kind of born out of out of tragedy by being this imperial prisoner um, sent for slave labor to be welcomed into again the, the clan leader's home and it's ultimately her again with having no blood relation to the clan leader that still instills the same ideals that that family, that clan, has passed on from generation to generation. So she becomes sort of the rightful heir to that lightsaber heirloom. Um, and then, of course, you have that that typical lightsaber duel or samurai duel um, at the climax where it's within that like facility, like that imperial-looking facility, but then you have almost these like sakura trees um, in the background amidst this sunset. It's like your typical like, samurai scene um, pulled out of, again, a samurai film and inserted into uh, Star Wars lore. So all in all, this wasn't a particularly thrilling episode for me, um, but I still enjoyed it for what it is. I, um, and I guess to kind of point out the, the anime connection, if you notice... Lop wears these sort of Dragon Ball like scouter, the scouter device over her left eye, um, which I feel like you know that was a blatant tribute to Dragon Ball. And if you look closely, I think it the side of that device has um, a logo of a carrot, maybe <laughs> referencing that that her design is it was obviously based off of a rabbit. I don't know if she, they ever mentioned her actual species name this one, and I'm curious to know what, what the non-Kalinen lore comes up with, but there you go. And in the final episode for Star Wars Visions, episode 9, Akakiri, produced by Science Saru in their second episode for the series, a Jedi with severe PTSD named Tsubaki reunites with his former lover Misa, a princess recently dethroned from her position of royalty by her crazed dark side loving aunt Masago. The pair are guided to the royal palace with the aid of this galaxy's Cheech and Chong, but the group is captured by Masago as she seeks to convince Tsubaki to cross over to the dark side. Tsubaki goes full Jedi Berserker and mercs some of Masago's masked henchmen until he realizes that Misa is one of his victims as foreseen in his vision. Hurt Brocken, Tsubaki agrees to join Masago as her apprentice, and the pair resurrect Misa before getting out of planetary dodge. So the anthology series ends on a rather dark but interesting short story that gave me Revenge of the Sith vibes. This is kind of like the Anakin-Padme relationship, um, again, with this Jedi, Tsubaki, having some sort of romantic connection with Misa, who has the Leia buns, so there's there's a, a Star Wars uh, Star Wars homage in, in that itself. And the story brings up the idea of force visions um, corrupting the mind of a force user if those emotions are not left in check, which led to Anakin's own demise and almost propelled Luke to the dark side as well um, in the original trilogy. So that's explored once again here with Uh, With episode 9, the ending of this is kind of strange, though, um, because it introduces uh, force healing, which is an ability that we see or saw in the sequel trilogy with um, the Rise of Skywalker and even in The Mandalorian um, in one of its season 1 episodes. So with force healing, the way I understand it like is you're able to bring a person back to life but it's supposed to come at this sort of sacrificial cost. Um, but with Subaki agreeing to, to follow Masago um, in her quest to come to power through the, the means of the dark side, he really doesn't suffer from the consequence of, of his own life um, being struck and down by, tr- by trying to, or by resurrecting Misa um, because of the use of this ability. Because I feel like there has to be a give and take with something that kind of bends the the concept of mortality. Uh, but you, again, you don't really see that here because he walks away fine, um, but Misa comes through the realization that uh, Tsubaki is no longer the person that she thought he was or that she was familiar with. Um, so that just leads him down a dark path. And again, it's kind of a... a a sad ending, um, to end the series on, but tragedy is also something that is prevalent in Star Wars. So I think this episode is just a reflection of that. And again, writing on the theme of hope that is prevalent through the Star Wars, uh, mythos, hopefully there will be a follow up episode or some sort of media that serves as a follow up to this where, Kind of as with Darth Vader's own arc, Tsubaki reaches his own redemption um, as he crosses back to the light side and realizes the the error of his ways um, in leaving or being consumed by his emotions um, instead of truly accepting destiny as it should have been. So we'll see. And so that brings us to our final thoughts for Star Wars Visions. So my final rating for this series would be 8.5 Bombad Banzai's out of 10. To start off with some of the, I guess, not issues, but the things that could have been improved on with the series, I would have loved to see a little more variety in the stories that that we see in these episodes. Um, So things outside of like these... Again, typical lightsaber duels, which, again, were nice. And again, very much tributes to the uh, samurai cinema genre that influenced Star Wars. But I feel like we almost got it every other episode. Um, I would have loved to see more character studies, um, perhaps of like other characters on the rebel side or the imperial side, kind of like Rogue One. Which, again, didn't have any lightsaber battles, save for for one. Um, but you know, just to really expand upon stories of regular folks that uh, that live in this universe and experience these things, and trying to see the the galaxy-wide conflict from from their eyes. Um, I would also have loved to see stories in other eras besides. the the rise of the Galactic Empire and I guess the fall of it too. Um, Because I think that's where a lot of these episodes, they take their settings from, which is either the prequels, maybe some of the original trilogy uh, timeline, and the one episode that takes place almost immediately after the um, original trilogy timeline. Um, It would have been great to see stuff from like the old... Old Republic, or I know Star Wars is going through a phase right now where it's stories, at least um, the literature-wise, are focusing on the era of the High Republic, which I think is the era that takes place before the prequels. So, you know, I would love to see them, again, expand upon the canon, the, the quote-unquote canon, a little bit more if they were to move forward with more series like this. Because again, I think Star Wars is one of those franchises that is just ripe with potential for, for new narratives. But for what we got with these nine episodes of Star Wars Visions was still amazing. Again, with the attention to detail that they give with remaining within the Star Wars mythos while adding that flair Of Japanese animation and again Japanese culture and tradition to really make it a unique Star Wars product that you can still embrace as part of the larger Star Wars franchise and I'll say it again stick for them to stick outside of the canon was a definite plus Um, not just because they aren't tied down by by meticulous lore but I think we don't always need tie-ins to the Skywalker family drama that's prevalent throughout um, most Star Wars stories. Um, I think for them to really stay stray away from that opened up endless possibilities for these stories to be told. And, of course, I think the bigger picture is with Disney here using anime as a medium to tell these stories within the star wars universe hopefully that starts to open up more opportunities for anime to be used in other anthologies or other stories kind of like what we see or what we saw with um batman ninja that came out i think a couple years ago or almost similar in concept to like marvel's what if like seeing seeing marvel characters in anime is would probably be really interesting and i know that they've had like manga collaborations as well and there have probably been a couple like a handful of tv shows that have a sort of anime aesthetic um, in the marvel universe uh who knows maybe we'll even get like (laughs) the office as an anime that's that's a far stretch but you know kind of taking anime and, and starting to inject it more into typical american pop culture um, it gives a, a nice—a new spin on things, and I feel like it's more of a—would provide more of a benefit than it would a disadvantage. But, you know, fingers and lightsabers crossed that Star Wars Visions gets the green light for a second, quote-unquote, season or series, or if they can even get other studios involved—looking at you, MAPA or Studio Wit—if um, if Visions gets more popularity and gains more traction— Because again, I would love to see and experience other stories in a galaxy far, far away. Also, I'm sure this is going to open up a world of opportunities for new Star Wars cosplay. (laughs) I mean, again, I'd love to see Lop as a a furry suit someday at an anime convention, or even the, the Jedi Ronin from episode one. But we'll see. And that wraps up episode 55 of Strictly Anime. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash thestrictlyseries and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every Monday. Follow us on Instagram at thestrictlyseries and on Twitter at strictlyseries and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com, to share your thoughts on the anime we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weep. and may the Force be with you.